0: Hola, mi gente. Bienvenidos. I'm your host, Lore, and this is Creepy Chisme. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente, it's your girl Lore here to bring you all the creepy chisme. And let me tell you, have I got some really good chisme for y'all today. Uh, this week's gonna be a, a little rough for me. Uh, I have a lot of emotions going on. I am turning another year older and seriously, I just get more anxiety every birthday because it's like one year closer to death. That's how I view birthdays. (laughs) Like I'm past 30, I might as well check out. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it, it is sad, it's still sad. I'm not excited about birthdays anymore. Oh man, um, it's been a while. What's been going on lately? Uh, we had Valentine's this past week, and I know it's the divorcee in me, but I see everyone's cute little Valentine's posts, and I'm just like, ugh, the effort you have to put into a relationship. And then I just sit back, sip on my wine, and snuggle in. <laughs> just judge everyone's cringy posts, Yeah. Uh, The best posts, though, are when a couple is literally together, but the post is about how much they love each other or love one one of them, whatever. (laughs) Aren't you right next to each other? Why don't you just verbally express that to them? And honestly, nobody cares. (laughs) I'm just being honest here. I can't hate, though, because I, too, am that idiot, though. (laughs) But I hope y'all had an amazing Dia de Amor, with your baby daddies, future partners, now partners, past partners, side chicks. I don't judge. You do you. <laughs> okay, I judge. Let me stop lying. But we all do, so don't hate on me, okay? <sighs> Can you tell I'm hating? It's Valentine's Day. I hate it. <laughs> but before I get into the next part here, I, I just want to take a minute and thank all of you who have been actively listening, sharing, comment, messaging. I mean, without you. I would have no ganas to continue because this shit is hard work. I'm not kidding. My advice for those wanting to start a podcast is make sure you love what you are researching or talking about. And I, I love writing. I love being creative. I mean, it's more than just speaking into a microphone. And then there's the editing part which is a whole nother journey in itself and takes hours. However, this is something that I, I truly enjoy, and with your support and feedback, I I will continue to get better and keep posting. I almost cried when, after the last episode, my Facebook group went from 66 to now 87, and my Instagram is almost at 200 followers, and my TikTok is at 250. Yeah, it might not seem like a lot to some of you, But when I first started this podcast, it was more so for family and friends, but now you beautiful strangers are reaching out to me with your kind words and support, and it's absolutely amazing. If I can make just one listener smile or happy each episode, then that alone makes me feel successful. It's amazing how people can complain about a job or work me included (laughs) but when you love what you're doing all the hours and the effort put in it just makes it worthwhile and not just that but seeing the positive feedback and the negative too it truly moves me and makes me feel like for once in my life i'm successful at something and i hope this continues to grow from here and all of you, mi gente, continue spreading the chisme and helping your girl out. It really means the world to me. All right. Enough mushy gushy crap, but I had to share the love. But it's time for a creepy chisme updater story. All right. Today I have an article that I found that I've never heard of and I want to share with you, mi gente. Now, it's an unsolved case known as the Lead Masks Case. It's been over 50 years and this still remains unsolved. Now, this article is written by Kalina Fraga and edited by Eric Hawkins. And this was last updated on February the 8th. You can find the article at allthatsinteresting.com. The mystery of the lead mask case began in the hills of Rio de Janeiro. There, in 1966, a young man stumbled across two bodies. But the circumstances surrounding these corpses was bizarre from the very beginning. Now, the bodies were side by side, didn't have any injuries, and the dead men wore these lead masks over their eyes. Now, the few items they had with them offered absolutely no answers. And one of them had a note in his pocket that only makes this mystery more creepy. Now, of course, because it's a mystery, there are tons of theories on this mysterious incident ranging from the supernatural to aliens, everything, you could, anything you can think of. But investigators still don't know why the two dead men wore these lead masks and what drew them into the Rio Hills or what killed them. So on August 20th, 1966, a young man named Jorge da Costa Alves decided to take his kite into the hills. As he wandered through Vintem Hill in Niteroy, Rio de Janeiro, he came across the heart-stopping sight of these two bodies in the weeds. Oh, my worst fear, finding a body. When police arrived, they found a strange scene and both men were dead. They wore raincoats over their formal suits and handmade lead masks over their eyes. Now, nearby was an empty water bottle, some towels, and a little bit of the But perhaps the most bizarre clue was a note that one of the dead men had in his pocket. So the note says, quote, 1630 be at agreed place, 1830, swallow capsules. After effect, protect metals, wait for mask signal. What? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so the lead masks case had begun, but although police managed to gather more information about the dead men in the next few days, each answer only led to more questions. So who were these two men? Uh, the first man was Miguel Jose Viana, And the second was Manuel Pereira da Cruz. Uh, Manuel was 32 and Miguel was 34. They were both married electronic repairmen who hailed from Campos dos Goitacazas. Woo, these names. (laughs) These South American names. Goitacazes. About 175 miles from the Niteroi. Now, police attempt to retrace the men's steps. And they found that both had told their families on the morning of August 17th that they needed to go to Sao Paulo to buy equipment and a car. But instead, the two men had boarded a bus for Niteroi. Now, after arriving in Niteroi around 2 p.m., the men had made several stops. They bought identical raincoats at a local store and a bottle of mineral water at a bar. Interestingly enough, they kept the receipt, suggesting that they meant to return the empty bottle later for a refund. Which is common in South American countries. You return your bottle, makes people recycle, and you get like a dime or whatever. But witnesses who remember seeing these men can tell that something was off. The bartender who sold Viana and Pereira da Cruz the water remembers that Viana seemed a little nervous. She told police that he kept checking his watch. Now from there, the lead mask's case went cold. Manuel Pereira da Cruz and Miguel Joseviana were last seen heading into the hills around 3.15 p.m. And three days later, they were found dead. So here's the theories, and this is what caught my attention. So to date, no one knows what happened in those hills of Rio de Janeiro. And like I said before, the two men's bodies offered little to no clues. And by the time they were found, they had decomposed so much, that the toxicology report also could find no clues. But theories have emerged over the years. But my favorite theory of all is actually brought upon by Pereira La Cruz's wife. Who claimed that both men had dabbled in scientific spiritism. And both were interested in contacting alien spirits. In fact, they tried multiple times with their friend, Elicio Gomez. What? I need to look that up. I didn't even know that existed. Scientific spiritism? I'd like to contact an alien too. Now, at one point, an electronic device the men had built together blew up in Pereira da Cruz's backyard. The three had apparently tried the device again on a beach and claimed to have witnessed an explosion in the sky. Police, however, followed more terrestrial leads. <laughs> they briefly eyed Gomez as a suspect since Pereira da Cruz's wife said that they had an argument. And Gomez also had told them contradictory stories a few times. And another man, Hamilton Besani, even told police he'd helped rob and kill Pereira de Cruz in Viana after meeting them at a spiritualism center and luring them to Niteroi. Now he claims an accomplice told him we have killed them both. We force them at revolver point to take the poison. However, police were unable to find anything to back up this story, and it was dropped. Now, in the end, it's not enough to know why these two men went up there. The mystery continues and fascinates many. Whatever the case, the two men entered these hills with a mission. They slipped a lead mask over their eyes, and then their world went dark. And the mystery of the lead masks began. Ooh, what do you think? Okay. Okay. So in reading the story and getting excited about aliens, (laughs) I came up with my own version of what happened. So the two men were lovers and in South American cultures, mm, it's, it's, it's not it's frowned upon still they're like way behind than america and other countries it's found it's frowned upon for you to be gay um because they're very religious so these two men i think were lovers and couldn't tell their families and committed a suicide pact that's what i think happened Yes, maybe they really did like scientific spiritualism and believed in aliens and wanted to contact them, but I don't think that's what they were trying to do. But the mystery baffles me and I find it interesting. Nothing has ever been found and 50 years later, it is still a mystery. Now another story I quickly want to share with you is actually something that has recently come up. Now, some of you may have heard or seen this on TikTok, but I dived a little deeper and wanted to know what the fuck was going on. Okay, so this video surfaced of these birds flying right down at full force and crashing into the ground. Now, I'll post the video on Instagram so you can see, but some of the birds die on impact and some immediately fly away. Others kind of shake it out and slowly regain composure and then fly off. But it looks like all these birds were thrown down with immense force. However, I will say that without knowing anything about the birds and just seeing this video, yeah, you'd be creeped out too. But there may, may be an explanation. Now, of course, conspiracy theorists were like, oh shit, the end of days has begun. (laughs) So they view it as a sign. Uh, Some claim that it's just high pollution around the area as the culprit, and it's bringing down birds. But the problem with this theory is that in the video, you can clearly see all these birds fall down at once, like in a flock. So if it was pollution or poisonous gases, these birds would be falling down constantly every day at any time, not all at once. Others say that possibly 5G may be to blame. I mean, at this point, everyone blames 5G, so no, I don't think so. But if that were the case, it would have affected all the people around the area too, right? So the video came from a security camera at a local paper office, and I'm telling you, the quality of this security video is the best I've ever seen, and y'all know how much I hate security footage. (laughs) So let's try to figure out why this happened. I mean, I'm surprised no one's mentioned alien force fields, but whatever. (laughs) But a more realistic idea is that an ecologist actually explained that he believed something like a larger bird, like a hawk, an eagle, was chasing this flock of birds known as starlings, causing them to panic and crash into the ground, which is not uncommon. However, I've never heard of birds crashing into like a main road. Now, another explanation could have been an overloaded power line, which actually makes a little sense. However, I did find that birds can perish from a large amount of toxic fumes, so the toxic gas or pollution might not be too far off as well. Regardless, I leave it up to you, so go watch the video and tell me what you think happened. Now, before we get into today's main topic, I want to remind you that some of these topics that I talk about on Creepy Chisme are very hard to hear. But in a case like this, I need to tell you exactly what this person did and was capable of, especially when he seemed like a normal person. So trigger warning, gore warning, torture, every single warning. (laughs) Please, if you are affected and triggered by topics with murder, torture, the worst thing you can think of, then I do not recommend this episode for you. And I truly mean it. I won't be mad, I promise, if you don't listen. (laughs) But if you're like me, just take it in stride, baby. Just take it in stride. (laughs) So, yes, trigger warning. Please um, don't play around. Also, uh, stay tuned to hear... A story at the end. Um, Sometimes I try to get one in at the end, but we'll see how long this takes because it is a very long story. Alright, here we go. The story I have for y'all today is about a serial killer who sometimes gets a little forgotten. Now, it is rumored that he could have been the inspiration for one of my all-time favorite horror movies, Halloween. This is the story of Edmund Emil Kemper III, or better known as the co-ed butcher or the co-ed killer. Now one more time, I just want to warn that I will be talking about some very graphic and disturbing details that are not for the faint of heart. Even I had to take a lot of breaks and clear my head as I was writing and researching, but I want to remind you that the reason us true crime nerds share this and stories like this is to bring awareness to all the early signs that were overshadowed in his youth and to bring knowledge of personality traits that maybe one day might keep you safe or help you to get the help you need, whether that be for you or for someone else. Because if not, Ed Kemp's story is exactly what could happen. So let's go to the beginning because Kemp's early life, I think, had a lot of signs that mentally he was just not okay, but also the way he was raised didn't help much either. So Ed was born in 1948 in Burbank, California. Yes, another West Coast killer from the 70s. He was the middle child, which in itself is enough mental damage. (laughs) I should know. Just kidding, y'all but he was the only boy and he had two sisters. Now his parents were Clarnell Elizabeth and his dad was Edmund Emil. His dad was a veteran of World War II who worked on nuclear weapons before shipping home. Clarnell was a bit of a rough woman and an alcoholic and she made her marriage, her family life very difficult. From the start, she made it very clear that she hated Edmund's electrician job And Edmund once said that living with this woman mentally affected him more than 369 days and nights of fighting on the front lines. So, wow. Treated. But that gives us a glimpse that it must have been a rough relationship for him. Now, mom gave very tough love, and especially to her boy, because she didn't want him to be soft. So she rarely praised him. So from birth, Ed was big. He was born at 13 pounds and was always taller than kids his age. Almost immediately, he shows signs of being antisocial and a loner. In 1957, Ed's parents separated and his dad left. And that's kind of when things picked up and started to get a little crazy. When Ed was 10, he began torturing the family pets around the home. He once buried a pet cat alive and he waited, he dug it up and decapitated it. Which, you'll see, becomes one of his things. He then put the decapitated head on a wooden spike to display. When his mother asked him if he did it, he lied and said no. However, later Ed admitted this doing and said he found great pleasure in lying about killing the cat. Now when Kemper was 13, he killed another family pet after he claimed that it was favoring his sister more. He dismembered the cat and kept parts of it in his closet. That was until his mother found them later on. Now, Ed's mom, she never really showed much love to him because she thought by doing so, it would make him a homosexual. Now, if ever Clarnell saw Daddy Ed give affection to Little Ed, she'd punish Little Ed. So, young Ed is given pretty much no affection, given strict rules at home, and he begins to hate his mother. Now, all of this hate and emotions he felt carried on to school, where Ed viewed his authoritative teachers to be just like his mother, telling him what to do, what he can't do. Now, along with any adults in general, not just his teachers. So he was a pretty awkward kid, thinking that any little wrong move would get him into some serious trouble. Now, his classmates took note of this very awkwardness, and they kind of bullied him. Of course, kids are, oh, kids are ruthless. I'm telling you, I work with them. (laughs) Ed had bad grades. He was awkward. He was very tall, remember I said. So yes, he was an easy target for the kids to pick on. Now, as a child, Ed had dark fantasies. He loved beheading his sister's dolls, along with the cutting off of their hands foreshadowing much maybe now some of his favorite childhood games were not red light green light or tag or ghost in the graveyard (laughs) do you know what ghost in the graveyard is it's the best game ever instead ed and his sister ed taught his sisters games such as electric chair or gas chambers games that he created and taught to the kids So he would ask them to bind him and flip a switch where he would then pretend to flail and fall and die. Ed would also gamble with death, Once, stating that while playing on train tracks, his older sister pushed him in front of a moving train. Well, she tried to, but she didn't succeed. Another time she pushed him into the deep end of a pool and he almost drowned. Ed claims his older sister did these things intentionally but I'm not so sure. However, I will say if his mama treated him pretty bad and his older sister is seeing this, then why wouldn't she do the same, you know? Kids learn what they're taught. Although these experiences probably did scare him, I'm sure he did enjoy them a little. One time his sister teased him, asking him why he didn't kiss his teacher, to which Ed replied, quote, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first, end quote. Ed then later recounted that he would actually sneak out with his dad's blade, go to his second grade teacher's house, and watch her through the window. Yo, that is creepy AF. I mean, second grade, you're like eight tops. Wow, so many red flags. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Where's Clarnell, his mama? Where is she? Well, she didn't witness all of this, but she did know that something was off with her son. But instead of getting him the help he actually probably needed, all she would do is punish him even more. For example, sometimes she would lock Ed in the basement and leave him to sleep on the cold basement floor. She claimed that she did fear that her son would hurt her or her daughters. So imagine how Ed felt after all of this. Along with this was harsh abuse, mental, verbal, physical, telling him that a woman would never love him. So, eventually Ed Kemper gets really tired of this abuse, and at the age of 14, he decides to pack up and run away to his dad. So he finds his dad, who's in another part of California, and he discovers that his dad was remarried, and even has a stepson. That's gotta be the worst feeling in the world, ugh. So he stays for a little bit, but eventually his dad sends him to live with his grandparents. Obviously, I'm sure his behavior was the same. Actually, it says that it got a lot worse living with his dad because Ed felt like he was replaced. And as a now teen, he became more hostile and full of rage. So his dad pretty much is like, look, you can't stay here. You're going to have to go back to your mom. But then he called the mom, and the mom was like, I don't want him. So the mom calls the grandparents, and she's like, can you take Ed? And they say, yeah. So Ed ends up going to live with his grandparents, Maud and Edmund. Now, they resided in Northern California on a ranch up in the mountains somewhere. I think the mountains of North Fork is what it said. Now, immediately, Ed hated it and said that his grandpa was senile, <laughs> And his grandma was just like his mother, emasculating both him and his grandpa. So he didn't like her either. So Ed was not going to tolerate being verbally abused again. He was over it. So he does the unthinkable. On August 27th, 1964, Ed and his grandma were sitting at the kitchen table. They ended up having an argument that led to Ed storming off. He was fuming, he was enraged, so he goes to get one of his grandpa's rifles that he let him borrow for hunting, and then returns back to the kitchen where his grandmother is and shoots her once in the head and twice in the back. He shot her three times, which goes to show that he wanted her dead. Now a few different sources do say that Maud also suffered stab wounds post-mortem, meaning after she was dead. Someone stabbed her, but this could not be confirmed, so it's just Cheesemith for now. So yeah, he's 15 at this point, and he's now got a taste of murder, but he's not done. Oh no. 15-year-old Ed then waits for his grandpa Edmund, who was on his way from the grocery store, and he meets him outside. Soon as he pulls up to the house, gun in hand, he shoots his grandpa. After the murders, he panics, calls his mom, which is crazy right your abuser you call her, you call your abuser but i get it and he tells her what happens and she's like you gotta call the police so he does and he waits there to be taken into custody so when the police interrogate him and they ask why why did you do this ed says quote just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma end quote what the fuck? Mm, this kid i'm telling you <laughs> It's wild, dude. He then goes on to tell them that the only reason he killed his grandpa is so that he wouldn't have to find out about his wife and live that life. Um, hmm. I don't don't know about that one. (laughs) Now, during the trial, he was deemed incomprehensible. Why did I say it like that? (laughs) Sorry. Incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit the crimes. He was then diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Of course, right? He was then sent to Atascadero, I think is how you say it, Atascadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security establishment for the clinically insane, but for convicts. So while here, the on-site psychiatrist and social workers were kind of confused as to why Ed was labeled a paranoid schizophrenic, because he didn't show any signs of it. Instead, they found him to be really smart. He had an IQ of 136, which was above average. Later, the facility changed his diagnosis, claiming that he only had a personality trait disturbance and that he was passive aggressive. They also later gave him another IQ test and he scored even higher with a 145. So this dude is highly intelligent. Now, Ed was a model prisoner, so much that he was actually trained to administer psych tests and evaluations to give to other inmates. He was good at working, and he took a lot of pride in what he was doing. But because of this job, Ed spent hours reading through paperwork of vile crimes other inmates committed, a lot of sex offenders. Now by testing other inmates and speaking to them, he learned a lot and not anything good. Edelator admits that this is when he learned how to manipulate the doctors and also he learned how to best kill a woman after raping her to leave no witness. Good lord. (laughs) My god. So he's in a place where he's supposed to be getting help and yet here he is. All this place has done is mold him more into the monster he is today. Now, when Ed turned 21, they decided to release him on parole because of his good behavior. Now, against his doctor's recommendations, they still willingly released him to his mother, who is at this point now remarried and divorced again. So his mom lives in Aptos, California, but was working as an administrative assistant at the local University of California, Santa Cruz. Now, after his probation in 1972, somehow Ed convinced his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated and cured of mental illness. Oh my goodness. Now... It could have all been stopped. It could have all been stopped had they just kept him in jail, first of all, for a double murder. But the psychiatrists know that he's a genius. He's reading all these files. He's working with all these sex offender criminals. What the hell, dude? He was really good. He was really good at convincing these doctors. So good that one doctor actually completely cleared his record, his juvenile record. Are you hearing me? His two murder charges are now wiped off. Poof, gone baby. What the fuck? Okay, (laughs) now again, I will remind you, he's very smart. He knows what he's doing. So as part of Ed's parole, he had to go to community college. Now his hope was to become a policeman, but remember I said he was tall. Well, now as an adult, Ed stood at a whopping six feet, nine inches. Holy shit. Because of this, um, he earned the nickname Big Ed. However, his size kept him from being accepted into the police academy. But he still had a very good relationship with a lot of the men joining the police force and on the police force in Santa Cruz. He even hung out with them quite often at a bar called The Jury Room. Now, eventually, he found a job with the state highway department, but he was still with his mom, who years later was still a toxica. Now, neighbors say you could always hear arguments at the home, and he tried to move out a few times, but because of finances, he ended up back with his mom later. Now, while living on his own one time, Ed got into a really bad motorcycle accident. He was hit by a car, and it messed up his arm pretty bad. Now, he ends up getting a $15,000 settlement, which was a lot of money back then. So he ends up buying himself a 1969 Ford Galaxy. And he cruises in his new car. Ooh, he's feeling good. So he starts noticing as he's cruising town that there's a lot of girls hitchhiking. So little by little, he starts storing some things in his car, you know, just in case he needs them one day, you know, like knives, plastic bags, blankets, handcuffs, a gun, yeah. Then he eventually started picking up hitchhikers. He estimates over 150 at least. Now I'm assuming he's practicing here because in one of my past stories, the toolbox killers, they did the same thing. He says that it's not until later that he notices he starts to have homicidal sexual urges. Now later, Ed would reveal that after arguing with his mother, he would go find a victim. And these women played as stand-ins to what he really wished he could do to his mother. So, Ed Kemper's Reign of Terror begins on may 7th 1972 now while driving in berkeley he spots these two girls 18 year old fresno state women and he picks them up so their names are mary ann pesch and anita luchesa so they ask him to take them to stanford university now after about an hour he drives out to this wooded area so he stops the car he gets out And he handcuffs Marianne and throws Anita into the trunk. So he then proceeds to stab Marianne to death while her friend is trapped in the trunk nearby. So after he does that, he goes back to the car and grabs Anita. And he's full of blood. And he even describes this in an interview where he's like, she looked at me in terror. and I mean, the way he speaks in his interviews, which I'm going to try to get some in to show you. It's just, I don't know, it's creepy because it's so natural for him to talk about these crimes he did and committed, but he also talks like, I know what I did, I know why I did it, because I'm crazy, and I'm crazy because, like, he's a genius, he is a genius, not in a good way. (laughs) He's a genius by test, right? He's a genius because he's got a high IQ rating, and it shows when he's talking, it shows because, I don't know. He's just (laughs) creepy. (laughs) But yeah, so he comes back and he does the same thing to Anita. Takes her out of the car, stabs her to death. Later when he is describing this, he remembers that he accidentally grazed his hand against one of the girl's boobs. And he said he got really embarrassed. So he apologized to her despite stabbing her to death only moments later. So that's kind of his mindset, which is sick. Um, And he says, like, he's like, I'm socially awkward, especially around women. So in order to get these sexual fantasies out, this is what he has to turn to. And then you have to think all those years his mother telling him a woman's not going to want you, a woman's not going to love you. So, yeah. Still not right, though, right? That just... I mean, obviously that shows he's not okay in his mind. So, he kills the two girls. He puts the bodies back in his trunk and he goes to his apartment. This is when he's living alone. Now, on the drive back, a police actually pulls him over. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine? Oh, my God. He gets pulled over because uh, he's got a taillight issue. But the police knows him, right? Because he hangs out with these police. He knows, like, he's super friendly with police, so he's totally normal. Uh, again, this oh, <laughs> this also shows how sick he is because any normal person who gets pulled over and has two bodies in the back, like, how are you not sweating profusely? But I can just picture him being, like, a, not cocky, but, like, you know, very chill, very, like, hey, what's up, officer? Oh, that's so crazy. So the cop just warns him, I think. I don't even think he even gives him a ticket. And, they, and then he goes off. So he drives his corpses home to where he lived with a roommate at the time who wasn't home. Um, and brings the bodies in. So he starts taking photos of the bodies. And has... It's so hard to say this. And he ends up having intercourse with both of them. He then dismembers them. Oh, my God. Like, literally, my body is hot right now with rage. Like, you ever feel that? Like, you're so angry. Like, your blood just flushes through you. Yeah. I Explaining this to you guys is really hard. As it was harder writing it and researching it and finding this out. Um, I knew a couple things about Ed Kemper, but yeah. <laughs> so, again, if this is too much for you, please take a break or skip. So, yeah, he cuts them up. So he puts the body parts into bags, which he later said he threw near Loma Prieta, uh, which is a mountain, but he keeps the heads. Oh yeah, he cut the heads off. He de- that's one of his things is he likes to decapitate his victims, which later I'll explain why. So he keeps the heads for last. So he takes these two heads to a ravine and engages in Iromatio. And if you don't know what that is, um, but I'm sure you might have an idea, right? So eventually, Mary Ann skull was found, but nothing else. Uh, also, one of Anita's remains were found. So now, we have our first two victims. Woo! Okay, take a breather, y'all. <laughs> um, so yeah, this was the first rendezvous after jail. You aren't even ready for the rest. <laughs> He's a sick man, y'all. He's a sick man. A sick, damaged man. Let's not forget that. He, he, he had a pretty damaged life. And, you know, it's, it's just... <laughs> oh, my God. Now, his next strike was in September of 1972. He picks up 15-year-old, my heart, dance student Aikoku. Now she missed her bus that day on her way to dance class and she didn't want to miss the class so she hitches a ride. Ah, poor girl. So he did the same as the others but something happened here. Something strange happens here. So when Ed parks the car in a secluded wooded area he gets out of the car and he locks himself out. Yes. Now before this He had the young girl at gunpoint, threatening her, scaring her, telling her he's going to kill her if she doesn't listen. So when he got out to grab her out of the other side of the car, he accidentally locks himself out. Eda later claims that he gained so much trust with Aiko that she actually unlocks the door for him to get back in. Do I get emotional reading that because what? And again, this all goes with the, it could have been fight or flight. I I don't know. But she unlocks the door, so he gets back in. And he says, like, to himself, he had thought it was over. But when she did that, he was like, oh, man, I really have control over these girls. Mm -hmm. So Ed gets back in, and he chokes her until she passes out he claims he raped her and then he kills her he puts her body in his trunk and decides to go get a drink right what do you do after killing someone you go to the bar now ed later reveals that when he leaves the bar he opened his trunk at the bar to admire what he had done so he's just there looking like hmm i did this oh my god He's getting too brave, you know? (laughs) So he takes the body home. Same thing. Has intercourse with it. Dismembers it. Throws the parts on a mountain somewhere and moves on. So Ed has to move back in with his mom due to financial reasons. So he kind of lays low for a little bit. Just a little bit. So his next strike is on January 7th, 1973. While he's driving around Cabrillo College, he spots an 18-year-old student, Cindy Hall. Now he picks her up, he drives her to a wooded area, and he shoots her. He then takes the body to his mother's house because he's living with his mother. But he has to be careful, so he puts the body in his closet overnight. How do you sleep? How? How? So he, yeah, he puts the body in his closet and when his mom leaves for work in the morning, he takes it out and continues his routine. He has intercourse with her. As he's dismembering her, he decides that he's going to remove the bullet that he shot into her head. Because evidence. And he puts her in the bathtub in his mom's apartment and saws her to pieces. He says he threw the remains off a cliff, except the head. He kept the head for a few days, engaging in Iromatio. He then buries it in his mom's garden. Now, okay, wait. <laughs> okay. Now, this is one thing I did know about Ed Kemper, because this is something that, you know, if you look up serial killer facts or weird serial killer details, uh, If you do, or is it just me? Do I do that? I don't know. (laughs) Do normal people do that? (laughs) This is one fact or story or tale that you will hear about a serial killer. And when I read this, you might then say, hey, I do know Ed Kemper. So he takes her head. He goes home and he buries it in his mother's garden making sure that the head is facing his mother's window, her bedroom window. He later reveals that this was because his mom always wanted everyone to look up to her. (laughs) What the fuck, dude? (laughs) Now, over the next few weeks after Cindy's murder, parts of her body were found and pieced together. Literally like a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces were found minus her head and her right hand. They then discovered, at this point, that whoever did this used a power saw to cut up the body. Let's take a break and have a thought here. So I feel like Kemper, because of his antisocial tendencies, he really didn't... He wasn't the type of killer that was into, like, torture of a human, you know? Like, he didn't rape and assault these women when they were alive. All he wanted was their body. That's it. Because his his fun. I'm doing air quotes because it's not fun. His fun is when they're dead. And he has lots of fun with them. You know, it could be hours and hours. I just. And remember, he's a big man. If it was about just sex, he could easily overpower these young girls and get what he wanted. To him, it was more about the after like when they're dead and that to me he is one of the one of the few serial killers who who enjoys what is it called necrophilia and those type of people i (laughs) i don't get it i don't get it i don't get it oh god okay let's continue y'all we got this all right so at this point when Cindy's body's found, people are talking. So police finally warn and say that uh, hitchhiking women need to be careful because there's a lot of missing girls coming up and being found dead. So it's a pretty scary time. Uh, a lot of women gave interviews on how scared they were during this time. But that didn't stop some of them. Some just didn't care and they continued on as normal. Because you have to think. Back then in the 70s, it was normal to hitchhike a ride somewhere. You know, there was no Uber. There was no Lyft. No, I mean, taxis were a thing, but what college student's going to pay for a taxi, you know? Oh, wow. Amazing. So around the Santa Cruz area, police warn the university students especially, and they tell them that you can still get rides from cars, but just make sure that they have a university parking sticker. So don't trust anyone else. Well, remember Ed's mother works at the university? So guess who had a parking sticker? Ed Kemper. On February 5th, 1973, after a fight with his mom, Ed goes for a drive and he finds 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Liu. Now Rosalind willingly accepted the ride, but she had to convince Alice to get in too this is according to ed so he shoots the girls and wraps them in blankets in the trunk he drives to his mom's but this time he decapitates the bodies in the trunk so he then brings the headless corpses in does his little routine intercourse dismembering removing the bullets and then he dumps the remains now most of these remains were found within a few weeks which was the fastest so he's getting sloppy later ed explains why he decapitates his victims so here's why he says that the heads were kind of like the final trophy the heads had everything the eyes the brains the mouth and that is what made a person he says you remember he he says he remembers being told once you cut off the head then the body completely dies and the body is nothing without its head. This is so crazy. I don't even know what to say. I don't. I don't know what to say. Um, I believe he said that when he was younger, he was taught to hunt, and that's what they were. To- that's what he was told. So yeah. So Ed is pretty much taking out all his frustrations from his mother out on these women, all because he hates her so much. Now, even though he's an adult here, even though he's, I think he's in his 20s now, his mother's still very mentally abusive to him um, through all of this. So yeah, so he said every time they'd get into an argument, it would set him off, trigger him, and he'd just go find a girl to pick up. I'm surprised there aren't more. And the reason I say that is because Ed Kemper has been very willing to speak about his crimes. He, I think it kind of gives him a little joy um he's not afraid to talk about what he did and he knows what he did and like i said why he did it so i'm honestly shocked there's not more victims so at this point in his life he pretty much hates women right his mom his teachers his bosses everything so he he pretty much hates women clearly and this man who is giant goes after these young and fragile women and he doesn't just kill them. He completely disrespects their bodies to the utmost humiliation. Um, throughout his interview, he says, like, it's all his mother's fault. This is all because of his mother. And and I believe that to be true. I, I still think he crossed I still think he has a few crossed wires in the brain. But yeah, so Ed was one of those serial murderers where again the argument The argument of nature versus nurture comes up, and in a case like this, I just think, what are the odds that Ed was born a psychopath, but also had the worst upbringing to mold him into this monster that he is today? Okay, so what I mentioned briefly, but want to remind you of is that all the while, Ed is hanging out with the law enforcement at their local hangout, the jury room. He claims he went here because he wanted to know the gossip or to see if any tips came up. They were literally sipping with the enemy. He was right there in front of them. And again, he was a sick man. Now, his relationship with the law enforcement was a pretty good one. He was Big Ed. They named him Big Ed. A nice guy. And I was talking to my sister about this yesterday because um, t- she she knows serial killers as much as I do so she was like oh I know who you're doing and I told her I said watching him in interviews I think it scares me more because he seems like a nice guy and I don't know how to explain it if you get a chance just watch one of his interviews on YouTube like he seems like a normal nice guy that I actually would enjoy talking to and that's scary So police are now on a manhunt for who they think is the same person. They didn't have much info to put out into the public other than be careful about getting into cars. So to describe how friendly Ed was with police. In April 1973, as part of a routine firearms check, one of the records clerks noticed on a specific file that part of the file had been blacked out. But it was very visible still to see what it said. So it showed that he had been involved in a double murder. When they saw who it was, they knew it was Big Ed. So police have to go retrieve his pistol. And of course, they're scared. (laughs) Well, intimidated, not scared, because dude is 6'9". And if he puts up a fight, no one can really take him down. (laughs) So a detective goes out to where his mom's apartment was and he parks. So They're looking around. It was kind of difficult to determine where his apartment was. It was a little confusing, but while they're out there looking, a car pulls up. When the man gets out, immediately they know that it's Big Ed. I mean, he's huge, so. (laughs) They explain that they need his gun because they have to check and make sure it's okay that he can have it. So Big Ed walks around to the trunk and the officers get a little nervous. So nothing was in the trunk except a balled-up blanket. So Ed grabs the blanket and inside was the gun. Now one of the officers noticed that his truck has no lining, which is kind of weird. But because they knew Ed, they took the gun, and that was the end of it. They never even checked if he could have it. They never put two and two together because he was Big Ed, a decent guy. So they thought. Two weeks later... After this incident at 5am, police receive a call from Ed who was calling from a payphone in Colorado. Ed is finally done and he can't take it anymore. He says he hasn't slept in days and he's been driving. He tells police he's done something terrible. He tells police that he killed his mother and her friend. Now hold on a second. (laughs) Now because it's Big Ed, police are like, what Ed? You're crazy. What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, I did. And they're like, all right, Ed, call back in a few hours and we'll talk to you. Yeah, they said that. So Ed waits a few hours and he calls back and he says the same thing. He killed his mother and her friend. He even tells them where to go, where to find them. And he says, if you don't believe me, contact the officer who went to get the gun from me. He knows where I live. Now, when they called that officer and told him, That officer said he felt his blood rush out of him and he got really weak because it clicked and he couldn't believe it. Ed would later recount the events that took place on April 20th, 1973. 52-year-old Clarnell arrived home late after a night of partying. She was noisy and woke up Ed. As she sat in her bed in her room, she noticed that Ed was standing in her doorway. Creepy. (laughs) So she says to him, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night now, end quote. To which Ed replied, quote, nope, good night, end quote. So he goes back to his room and he just waits until he knows that for sure she's asleep. So he comes back and he beats her to death with a claw hammer and slits her throat. But he's not done yet. He does his little routine where he decapitates her, his own mother, engages in iromatio with the se- severed head, then sets her head on the living room mantle and uses it as a dartboard. Ed tells us that he spent about an hour just screaming at his mother's head. Now, eventually, after all the rage and anger, he smashes the face in. And he says that he even tries to cut out her tongue and larynx. He threw them down the garbage disposal to completely destroy them. But apparently the disposal couldn't even break down the vocal cords and it spit them back out into the sink. Cringe. Cringe, y'all. Ed later says that this was his mother, that this was a sign from his mother because she never shut up, even in death. So he hides his mother's corpse in a closet and goes out for a drink. When he gets back home, he comes up with this plan. He invites his mom's friend, 59-year-old Sarah Hallett. He tells her he wants to watch a movie and hang out. So the plan was to say that these two women left on a trip together so no one would get suspicious that they were missing. But soon as Sarah arrives, he strangles her, puts her in the closet too then cleans up and he takes off. Now, he does later mention that the reason he only strangled his mom's friend and put her in the closet was because he was done. After he killed his mom, he had no need or want to do the things he had been doing previously, and that's why he didn't do much to his mom's friend except strangle her. Now, before he leaves, he writes a note. So here's the note that Ed Kemper left. 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. <laughs> so I think he's talking about his mother's friend here. Um, I guess he's too busy to kill her. <laughs> oh my God. So, yeah, he left that at the scene of the crime. So, uh, yeah, he packs up. He's got guns, ammo, caffeine pills to drive all night. He drives over a 1,000 miles to Pueblo, Colorado. And after still not hearing any news, I don't know if he thought he'd be all over the news by now, but he was waiting for something. That's when he decided he was going to turn himself in. So, finally, after the second time, remember, he had a call back. uh, After the second time... Um, police go to him in Colorado and to the home. Ed is taken into custody, where he also admits to police willingly about the other women. When asked why he turned himself in, he said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And as the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just sat to hell with it and called it all off. End quote. Now again, he's blaming his mother. And now that she's gone, it's over for him. And I wonder if he would have killed his mother early on. Would this have stopped? Crazy, y'all. I need a fucking drink. This is crazy. So on May 7th, 1973, he was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. Now, because of his detailed conve- confession, all he really could do was plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, while he was in custody, Ed tried taking his life on more than one occasion. However, the case went to trial in October of, 19- in October of 1973. And after three psych tests, he was found to be sane. In fact, they claimed that he was well aware of his doings and enjoyed the attention he was getting as a murderer. But remember, he used to work in the mental hospital when he was younger, and he knew how to pass those psych tests, so just keep that in mind. Now, Ed took the stand at his own trial, claiming that he killed because he wanted the victims for himself, like an item to keep. He then tried to get the jury to think he was crazy, stating that no sane person could do the things he did. He also said he had two personalities, and when the killer took over, he would black out. Honestly, mi gente, I kind of agree with this chump. A lot of serial killers, or murderers in general, say that sometimes they get so heated, and if he was so heated after a fight with his mother, yeah, he possibly could have blacked out. To me, him blacking out is the only plausible reason someone could do the things he did and sleep at night. On November 8th, 1973, Ed Kemper III was found guilty and sane on all accounts. So he asked the judge for the death penalty, even requesting death by torture. But instead, he was given eight life sentences and sent to a medical facility to get mental help after what he did. Now in prison, Ed was kept with other notorious criminals like Herbie Mullen and Charles Manson. Ed, who towered over everyone, was very intimidating. He hated Mullen, and he said he was a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody for no good reason. Now Mullen used to like to sing out, especially when people were watching TV, and Ed would shut him down, even once throwing water at him. Ed then said, When Herbie was a good boy, he'd give him peanuts. Now eventually, Mullen would ask Ed if he could have permission to sing. Ed then states, that's called behavior modification treatment. Remember, this dude's IQ is 145, and he knows all these different forms of mental training and abuse, and he's using it on the prisoners. Pretty scary, honestly. (laughs) Now regardless in prison, he was a model prisoner and he was a secretary for the jail psychiatrist scheduling inmates appointments. Hmm, they just never learn, huh? (laughs) He loved ceramics and was pretty good at it. And listen to this. Ed loved reading and recording books on tape for the blind. It is said that he spent over 5,000 hours narrating books over sever- over 700 recordings. Imagine someone enjoying a book and it's him reading. Oh, God. Now, Ed says he never held back details of his crimes because he hopes by telling his story that he can save someone else from killing. Since he's been imprisoned, he's been denied parole 13 times. His next hearing will be in 2024, but my guess is it'll be denied again. Ed Kemper III portrayed himself as a normal guy, but with his intelligence, he was able to fool many and commit some of the worst murders I've ever heard about. And honestly, to this day, I think he's still fooling a couple. I'm going to play you a bit of recording, and this is Ed casually talking about when he decided he was going to kill his mother and what happened.
1: I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party. She got soused. She came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that. I got came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback, as many thousands of nights before. And she said, "Oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now." Shit. I looked at her. I said, "No." I said, "Good night." I knew i was gonna kill her you know and i'm so cold it's so hard and that's the first time in 10 years i've looked at it that way i mean that intensely that honestly it hurts because i'm not a lizard i'm not from under a rock i came out of her vagina see I came out of my mother and in a rage i went right back in for seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. Is one of our arguments. I cut off her head, and, I'm, and I humiliated her corpse. It's there, you know, six young woman dead because of the way she raises her son, and the way her son is raised, the way he grows up. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. God, I wish I had.
0: Now, during him explaining this, uh, you can't see the video, but he definitely got a little emotional. And this shows that even though it was his mother and he hated her, he says, I came out of this woman. Like She still gave me life. She's my mother. And it does get him a little emotional. And this is one of the few times Ed ever shows emotion in talking about these murders. So during his interview, Ed is asked a question that I want to share with you. I'm someone
1: who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Can you say how many people might be doing crimes like you were doing? It would be a guess, but it's not. It's far more than 35. It isn't that impossible in this society. It happens. Are there more people they didn't give up? Uh, many she didn't give up I did I came in out of the cold and what I'm saying is there are some people who prefer it in the cold good people see a nice guy but I wanted to love my mother and I watched the alcohol increase I watched her social life drop off I watched her get bizarre she had terrible pain from her life earlier life her upbringing Failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. I hate to distill it down into such uh, into one word realities like that. There's a lot that leads into that happening, but that is what happened. They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. Why did you actually kill the girls? My frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking.
0: This is Ed Kemper. This is the way Ed Kemper speaks, and this is what I'm talking about when he is creepy, because he himself self-diagnoses exactly why he did what he did. If other serial killers spoke out like he has, and who's to say he's being 100% truthful, right? Remember, he studied all those files of those mentally insane people. Is this just a show? Is this just what he thinks we want to hear? Yeah, I don't I don't even know what to say, guys. Um, yeah, I highly recommend you go watch his interviews. Um, they're not that long, but just so you can see what kind of human he truly is. And by watching those interviews, I can tell he feels nothing. So the part where he starts crying about his mom, I kind of get a little confused because is he really showing emotion or is he showing relief? I hope y'all found that interesting. Um, I always find serial killers interesting. Like I said, that was very rough to research and I struggled. I definitely did. So if you made it through, (laughs) woo, thank you so much. And I hope you don't have nightmares. It was pretty brutal. But I love studying this. I love studying the mind of these monsters and figuring out why, right? Okay. Okay. It's time for a listener story. Today's listener story was sent in by Anonymous, but it's actually a creepypasta story they sent me, and I thought it was pretty creepy, so I'm going to share it with you. It's called La Bruja. My mother told me the story once, and my grandmother told me that she lived through it. In the early 1960s, there was a small town in Mexico where a lot of babies just happened to be born around the same time. It is said that there was a woman who haunted the town. She was not a ghost. She was one of the 200 people that lived in the town at the time. People say that she was a witch, a worshiper of the devil. And many people said that she would go out into the fields in the middle of the night when everyone was asleep. Some local farmers claim that they would go see her whenever they would go outside to check on their animals because their animals would make a lot of noise whenever she passed. They could never tell who it was because it was always pitch black and they couldn't see a thing. It was a poor town with a couple of streetlights. People weren't so worried about her for a while because they saw that she did no harm to them until something terrible happened. One night, A married couple slept with their baby between them. They were poor, and they couldn't afford a mattress, and had a carpet as their bed. The parents did not sleep too close to their baby because they were afraid that they would accidentally roll over and hurt the child. The mother and father were deep into their sleep until the mother heard the baby cry out terribly. It shrieked a blood-curdling scream, loud enough to wake up my grandmother and grandfather who lived next to them. The baby cried, and the mother woke up and tried to put him back to sleep. Whenever she went to sleep again, she heard the baby cry once more. She woke up again and did the same as before. This went on for about two more times. The mother became angry and impatient with her baby because she was really tired. The father was asleep and would not wake up no matter how many times his baby cried. The fifth time that the baby cried... His mother ignores it. The baby cried for another couple of minutes. The mother continued to ignore her baby until she subconsciously heard someone walking outside. She heard the door squeak open slowly, and then it shut loudly. The door was made of thick metal, so the loud sound terrified her and finally woke her and her husband up as well. When she looked for her baby, She saw that he was quiet and thought he was sleeping. The mother asked her husband why he wouldn't wake up before. He said that he'd never heard anything. When the mother went to hold her baby, she saw that he was cold. She kissed her baby to try and wake him up, but he wouldn't. The baby was dead. When she took off his blanket, she saw that his stomach and arms had scratch marks. Someone was hurting her child while he was sleeping. Then her husband cried, La bruja, la bruja lo mató, mató a mi hijo. The witch, the witch killed him. She killed my son. The mother swore that she heard a woman giggling. After that, many parents held their children close to them whenever they slept. Sometimes children would cry in the middle of the night out of nowhere, and their mothers would begin to pray. The children, who could speak said that they would feel someone grabbing them. The witch would leave after. It wasn't until years later that two children died, a brother and a sister, except it was in a river in the town. One man swore that he saw a woman pushing the boy and girl's head into the water and laughing when she did so. He yelled at her to leave them alone and ran to stop her. She kept laughing at him and was singing as he ran towards her but when he almost reached her, she was gone, and the boy and the girl's bodies were found floating in the water. People began to suspect women who could be the witch, but coincidentally, many people left the town around that time to move to other places, and she could have been one of them. I love Bruja stories so much. Uh, so if you have more, please send them in. I would in, I would love to read them. Uh, yeah, Mexico really, they are terrified of brujas. <laughs> but um, I never forget my first trip to Mexico. I was like six maybe. And my mom was like, oh, you're going to sleep with your cousins. Okay. So we go to their little house. And I was sleeping. And my cousin... I think it was my cousin Lupita. She was like, don't look at the window. And then I was like, why? And the reason I was looking at the window was because the rooms, they were like cement, so it was super dark, and the window had a light in it. And she was like, don't look at the window. And I'm like, why? And she was like, because if you see the witch, she'll come in and scratch you. Like if you look at her, you're giving her permission to come in. And I was just like (gasps) And I was like six, and I was so scared. I think my sister was with me. (laughs) But yeah, I was just like, what the heck? (laughs) But yes, I've heard lots of stories of witches scratching babies and all this stuff. So watch your babies, (laughs) y'all. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Remember, y'all can always find me on Facebook groups and Instagram. Share this episode with a friend or on social media. That'll help you girl out. And if you like this crazy episode and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to hit those five stars and leave a good review for us. The more reviews, the more gente that'll want to listen. It's been really creepy, y'all. Gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, stay creepy and spread the chisme. Adios, mi gente.